0: This is episode 305 with 10-time finisher of the Western States Endurance Run, ultra-marathon running coach, and host of the popular running podcast, Crack a Brew with AJW, Andy Jones-Wilkins. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the goal of this show, strengthrunning.com, and our YouTube channel is to help you better understand the process of improvement. Because when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. If you're new here, welcome. I'm the head coach of Strength Running, formerly a 239 marathoner, and author of the new Performance Training Journal, which is now available on Amazon. On this podcast, I share my insights on the sport and speak with the world's smartest subject matter experts to help you improve. I'm happy to connect anytime, so feel free to email me or you can send me a message on Instagram or YouTube. Before we dive into today's show, I want to thank our partners who support the show. They're offering you some great discounts, which I hope you'll take advantage of. First is Prevenex, the only supplement company I've ever partnered with because they're the best. They're voluntarily putting themselves under more scrutiny and holding themselves to higher standards. I've talked about Joint Health Plus all this year and how many testimonials I've seen because frankly, it just works. But I wanna tell you about my personal favorite product from Prevenix called Nurify. It's a plant-based meal replacement that I love after a run because it gives me protein, carbs, and fat along with vitamins, minerals, and probiotics. It's the perfect solution to getting in balanced nutrition right after a run in a way that's easy to stomach and provides fluids as well. I love convenience and Nurify helps with fueling and recovery by giving me convenient nutritional support at a time when the body is very receptive to it. Give the chocolate flavor a try at prevenex.com and be sure to use code Jason15 for 15% off. If you're training hard right now, NeuroFi is going to help you recover a lot faster. Try it at prevenex.com and use code Jason15 for 15% off your purchase. Next is the MOBO board. Go to moboboard.com and use code STRENGTHRUN10 to save 10% on your board. Invented by renowned physical therapist Jay DeSherry, MOBO helps you stabilize your stance with a very unique rocker board. And what you do is you learn how to improve your stability with proper mechanics from the foot up. You know, I was at a weekend workshop on injury prevention and performance just last month with Jada Sherry. And it's amazing how important it is to be able to do this specific movement. It's necessary to be able to drive your big toe into the ground, to produce power, to prevent injury, and to optimize your form. Get... All of these benefits with a MOBO board at moboboard.com. And don't forget code STRENGTHRUN10. It'll save you 10%. Okay. My guest today is a fixture in the ultra running world. Someone who's run the Western States 100, Hard Rock 100, Leadville Trail 100, Wasatch 100, Vermont 100, and many others. Andy Jones Wilkins is an ultra runner and coach who focuses on helping ultra endurance athletes excel. He writes a regular column called AJW's Tap Room on I Run Far, and he hosts the very popular Crack a Brew with AJW podcast. In this episode, we sit down for a deep dive on the Western States Endurance Run. We discuss how to segment the course, how it compares to other iconic 100 milers like the Leadville Trail 100, what types of runners will be successful at this event key training sessions before 100-milers in general, and Western States specifically, and a lot more. Andy is just an endless fountain of insights and knowledge about ultras, and I know you're going to get a lot out of this, even if you don't run 100-milers. I literally had goosebumps as he described the history of this race and what makes it so special. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Andy Jones-Wilkins. Andy, thank you for making the time. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to be here, Jason. Uh, Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm
0: excited to chat with you because
1: you are a runner, you are a
0: coach, you are a podcast host. So uh, in many ways, we are living parallel lives a little bit. Um, You are also someone who's run the Western States Endurance Run, uh, I think, 10 times. Am I correct in that assumption?
1: Yes. Yeah. I, I, I ran it 10 times uh, between uh, 2001 and 2014. Ran it for the last time in, in 2014, after which uh, my good friend uh, and fellow competitor, Craig Thornley, who's now the race director, said, I hope you enjoyed it because you're never running it again. Did he ban you from the race? (laughs) I just have to volunteer every year, (laughs) which I gladly do, by the way. (laughs) Well, this is
0: such an iconic race. Uh, It is, in my mind, one of the more difficult 100-mile races. Uh, And you uh, have such a background with it as as a coach and an athlete. And so, you you know, you're quite the authority on the subject. I would love just like a brief background on it. Can you describe this race so those of us who don't really know it too well will appreciate it and all the things that Western States offers?
1: Excellent question. Well, I think just for the for the brief history lesson, you go back to the to the fifties, the nineteen fifties, and uh, the Tevis Cup horse race uh, was a long distance hundred mile horse race. Still exists. To this day from Olympic Valley area in Lake Tahoe to Auburn, which is a sort of a bedroom community 30 miles uh east of Sacramento in the central valley of California, or in the foothills of the Sierra in California. And and the horse race went on for years and years and years. There lots of people invested time and energy into the Western States Trail. It's a it's a historic trail that from the era, from the mid 1800s, connected various gold mining camps uh, in the American uh, River base, American River Basin, and and uh, as luck would have it, in uh, 1974, one of the horseback riders, the legendary uh, Gordy Ainsley, his horse went lame uh, shortly before the race, and he chose to run the distance, and he ran the distance in under 24 hours, and the Western States Run was born. for For a couple of years after that. The race, the running race, and the horse race were held concurrently, but the ru- the running race quickly uh, became a popular thing uh, in and of itself, and. From up to up to this day, the two races are held independently: the Western States 100 in uh, in late June, and and the Tevis Cup 100 mile horse race. And it's it's gone back and forth between late July and and early August. So really, the Western States Trail Foundation, which is uh which is the nonprofit that supports the trail trail maintenance and the history, and uh is is really exists for both the run and the ride. So that's the basic history. Very soon after Gordy did that run, there were three people the next year, there was a group called the Gang of Four that got together uh, and uh and and sort of became the race directors of the event several of whom are still involved in the race Wendell Roby is really seen as the grandfather of the Western States 100 Roby Point which is mile 98.9 of the Western States course bears his name and uh Wendell Roby is inextricably linked to those those trails and and the Western States trail and the lore of it so from those humble beginnings we now have the event that uh, attracts more than 7500 people to its lottery and, and you know, in a few short days is uh, is going to be running for its 50th anniversary year. So a very exciting year for Western States this year.
0: I absolutely love how it started as a horse race. And then one somewhat crazy guy just decided, <laughs> I'm going to run this myself rather than sit on my horse and do it. Just incredible. Um, talk to me a little bit about what makes Western States unique from other 100 mile races, both, you know, here in the United States and elsewhere. Um, Cause I understand that, you know, this is not just a difficult race because of the distance, but because of the terrain and how the course actually runs.
1: You know, I, I, at first of all, Western States has an aura about it. The Western States trail has an aura about it and the Western States event does. So as a, as a sports fan, I equate that to Fenway Park or the Augusta National Golf Course or Churchill Downs for horse racing or the Rose Bowl. These are iconic places that simply the name of those places evokes a certain amount of excitement and anxiety and history and aura. Uh, In running, uh, certainly here in the United States, the Boston Marathon does that, right? Going through Wellesley, going through the Newton Hills, climbing Heartbreak Hill, making the turn onto Boylston. All of those things have a direct parallel when you think of some of the, the place names at Western States, Robinson Flat, Michigan Bluff, Devil's Thumb, Rocky Chucky River Crossing, right? These are places that kind of have a, a life of their own, like Amen Corner in, at the Augusta National Golf Course at the Masters. So take that as the as the raw material then you take the fact that it's a it's a single trail stretching 100.2 miles from Olympic Valley to Auburn it's over the years been a place for gold miners and explorers and horseback riders and runners and backpackers and hikers and and people trying to eke a living out of the out of the gold country of California and then this race has been staged there so you then the race takes on a life of its own it is to this day, not the most competitive hundred mile race in the world. It's probably the second most competitive hundred mile race in the world after UTMB, but it is certainly the race with the most mystique. And I think that affects people, different people in different ways. If you if you go to Olympic Valley this week. In the days leading up to the race, it looks way larger than an event that only has three hundred and eighty participants. It feels way larger. It has it has a a buildup and a hype and a, and an energy around it. Uh, that is incredible. And so not only do you have the history of the gold miners and the horse race, but then you have the history of the 40 years of running. You know, Ann Trayson winning it 14 times, Tim Tweetmeyer running 25 times, all under uh, 24 hours. More recently, Jim Walmsley making some famous mistakes and then coming back and correcting those mistakes. Um, You know, seething heat in the uh, canyons big piles of snow in the high country. Uh, there's so much that goes into the dynamic of it. I've just been talking to athletes that I'm coaching going into the race this year. I have six athletes running it. Not surprisingly, they're all pretty nervous and they have questions about the heat and what shoes to wear and what the snow is going to be like and when their feet are going to get wet and where they should have their crews go and and all of those kinds of things. And all of those things add up to this big stew of like man, Western States is kind of a big deal. The final thing to add to that is now, because it's so darn popular, many people, like the six people I'm coaching this year, realize that this probably is like a once-in-a-lifetime thing, right? That they've they've spent these years trying to get into the lottery. They're finally in. They kind of have this one shot, you know, to get from Olympic Valley to Auburn. And And while everybody dreams of that 24-hour silver buckle, not all of them are going to get that silver buckle. And most of all, they just want to get to that track with a few seconds remaining on the clock <laughs> during the golden hour so that they can uh, get around that track and get that Western States finish. So all of those things combine, and I think that's part of what makes it a little bit more special than, than your average, you know, average trail race.
0: Andy, you're you're giving me goosebumps with this <laughs> description of the race. It just sounds so exciting. If, if I had any desire to run a hundred miles, i'd I'd be trying to get into that lottery. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so I, I think the the fact that it's often a once in a lifetime opportunity for runners, you know, in that way, it's it's somewhat similar to, working really hard to get a Boston qualifying time in the marathon, although I think this is is much more difficult. Um, and you likely don't have as many opportunities to run Western States than you do for Boston. Um, let's talk about some specifics about the course itself, because it sounds like there's a lot going on. You know, you have river crossings, you have some serious heat, in some parts of the races, you also get up in the high country and you, you mentioned some snow. I was actually listening to uh, another podcast where they were talking about how, you know, there's, there's actually like feet and feet of snow, even in now that it's mid June. And and this is really throwing a wrench into a lot of different types of, of race strategies, because it's going to be much more wet than usual. Can you talk a little bit about things like the You know, altitude changes of this race, what the elevation gain and loss is like, uh, the terrain itself, uh, because it does sound like one of the things that makes Western states a challenging race to complete is just the variability of what you're going to experience over that, you know, roughly 24 hours. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, what I tell everybody, first and foremost, is it is a downhillers race. That, that's not to say you don't have plenty of uphill, but you start at around 6,000 feet and you finish at around 1,000 feet. So right there, you've got a net loss of 5,000 feet. Now, along the way, you descend a total of 23,000 feet and ascend a total of 18,000 feet. So by by no means is it flat, right? But it it really has four distinct sections with four distinct uh, characteristics which really challenge even the most skilled and experienced ultra runner. So let me I'll, I'll walk you through the four distinct sections. You talked about the snow. Section one is from mile zero at the ski area at Olympic Valley to the aid station at Robinson Flat, which is mile thirty. Okay, it sits. the The, the, the elevation gain is in between those is about six thousand feet but basically you start at about 6,000 and you finish at 6,700 and you go up and down and up and down along the way. That section this year will have quite a bit of snow. Um, It won't be 30 consecutive miles of snow. There'll be parts where you're going over what appear to be snow drifts or crusty, icy, slushy snow drifts where you might be in a shady section. It might be kind of off camber tilted to the side where you kind of just have to scramble even a little bit on all fours to sections that have been exposed to the sun where the sun is out and you can get on dirt, but the dirt is much more likely mud and water and sort of gravelly rocks that are sort of characteristic of the Sierra uh, Nevada mountains. Um, to some places where uh, you're, it's kind of wide open, where the they've been able to, uh, you know, the sun has hit and, and melted the snow. So people will range from running through feet and feet of snow to running through patches of snow and mud and grit and grime to actual regular dirt trail in that first 30 miles. They'll also go through Duncan Creek at around mile 25, which the water level will be past their waist. No, they'll be they'll have no choice but to get wet. There's a rope across the river there. Um, and then a, a climb up to this aid station that I'm talking about, Robinson Flat, where they'll see their crew for the very first time, most likely change shoes and socks because they'll be out of the snow at that point, and they'll be beginning section two. Section two is 32 miles long. It's notorious for Western States runners. It's known as the canyons. The canyon section stretches from Robinson Flat at mile 30 to Forest Hill, mile 62. In that 32 miles, you traverse three big canyons. Uh, The first one is the steepest down into Deadwood Canyon. It's 2,000 feet down, 2,000 feet back up to the Devil's Thumb aid station. It's only four miles as the crow flies. Uh, Most runners will take an hour and a half. A a good 24-hour runner would take an hour and a half to cover those four miles. After after Devil's Thumb, the second canyon is a little bit shallower. It's a beautiful five-mile descent to El Dorado. There's a bridge across El Dorado two and a half mile climb up to the Michigan Bluff aid station, which is mile 55. That's the second time. You'll see your crew. You've seen them at mile 30. You see them again at mile 55. You look dramatically different at mile 55 than you did at mile 30. Uh, And then you go through the third canyon, which is called Volcano Canyon. It's the shallowest of the three, but it's by no means uh, an easy canyon. Your feet get wet crossing Volcano Creek at the bottom. And then you enter the town of Forest Hill, which is really the first time and only time in the race you're in an actual real town. Uh, And at that point, you've run 100k. You've run 62 miles, and as I, you know, I like to say, you know, your race is half over. Now we're like, wait, it's a 100-mile race. How can your race be half over at mile 62? Well, you've still got a lot of racing left to go. Section three is California Street or Cal Street. It's nicknamed 16 miles from Forest Hill to the American River River Crossing, the Rocky Chucky River Crossing. People have probably seen videos and photos of people crossing the river holding a a rope or on little rubber rafts. This year, they're taking rubber rafts across the river. That's a 300-foot descent down to the river, all on beautiful single-track trail, but it has a, a few little ups and downs through there that will kind of test you. And then you cross the river and you have 22 miles to go, and frankly, if you have any legs left, that is where you can do the most running. The, the variability at that point is just a couple hundred feet. Maybe maybe the biggest climb is maybe four or 500 feet through there. The trail is really smooth. Obviously, you have 80 miles on your legs, but if you've conserved energy and you've preserved your legs, that last 20 miles can be some of the most runnable part of the race. And so for runners who might be thinking about doing this and, and wanting to bite it, bite it off into more digestible chunks, doing it in that 30, 32, 20, uh, 16, 22 way, I think works really well. And those sections all have very unique characteristics that allow that, that, that mean for the versatile runner. The mountain, the mountain goat will do really well through the snow. The uh, climber and descender will do really well through the canyons. The, The pure runner will do well down to the river and the person who can gut it out and just, you know, fight off fatigue will do really well from the river into the finish. Are there any athletes who are good at all of those things? It's a it's it's a challenge. I mean, versatility, you've got to have versatility. I think we see the successful runners, both the historic successful runners like Ann Trayson and Tim Tweetmeyer, or more recent runners like uh Jim Walmsley, Ellie Greenwood, uh last year, uh, uh Rachel Croft. You know, I think those are the runners that have, have been able to do that, and they kind of have to train for it. But most runners will come into the race knowing that they have a strength in one of those four areas and will just do the best they can in those areas. Sorry, not Rachel Croft, Ruth Croft. Apologies, Ruth. She was the winner last year and ran a great race. So I would say that, you know, a downhiller is going to do really well there. A pure runner is going to do well there. But you've got to be able to climb as well, and you've got to be able to climb in strategic ways and strategic spots? I would say that the 100 mile race that I know the
0: most about is probably the Leadville trail 100, just because it's here in my backyard in Colorado. I went to spectate last year and was able to, uh, see a lot of folks, uh, at the aid station, uh, you know, right before and right after you get up to, uh, I believe it's Hope point, but, uh, or hope pass rather. Uh, would someone who is good at the mountain running like at Leadville be pretty good at a course like Western States? Are, are they comparable a little bit? You know, I, I know the altitude is substantially higher at Leadville, but I'm wondering what the comparisons are.
1: That's an excellent question. Um, and, of course, Leadville, one of the uh, one of the you know, legacy hundred milers in the United States as well. You know, Leadville basically has four climbs. Sugarloaf Pass going out, Hope Pass going out, Hope Pass coming back, Sugarloaf Pass coming back. In between those climbs, it's runnable as heck, right? So take, take for example, the start the start all the way to May Queen all along that wonderful turquoise lake beautiful buffed out single track really nice running you mean most runners are going to run you know if you're if you're a lead pack type person that's a half marathon you're going to run in like uh, hour 45 right so that's you got to have those runner's legs then you go up and over Sugarloaf you come back down you you spill out onto pavement for a little while and then dirt road and you're running again and then of course the The insane climb up Hope Pass, this even more insane climb back down, turn around, come back up, come back down. I think for Leadville runners, training for that, it's much easier to be like, okay, I'm focusing on climbing this weekend. I'm focusing on running this weekend because they really need to go from climbing at 20 minute miles to running along Turquoise Lake at seven minute miles, right? So, The Western States runner might never be as smooth and fast as like Turquoise Lake, but they're also never doing anything quite as insane as the backside of Hope coming back up after the turnaround at Winfield. So the extremes at Leadville are a little different, not to mention the altitude. And it's a little bit less of a test of the full versatility of a runner Uh, than you might have at Western States. I would encourage you to look and uh, and maybe at some point chat, I think three runners in particular, could really give you a, a good, uh, and I'd love to. Maybe I'll have them on my podcast. Ian Sharman, who's run multiple times at both, Rob Carr, who's won run multiple times at both, and and Claire Gallagher, who's run multiple times on both, and and I and and all of them at a very successful. I'd be curious to see how their both training is similar and different uh, between Western states and Leadville, and how execution on race day is, but. I think there are more similarities than differences, but they really are, they're definitely different beasts. Not to mention the fact you're not, well, you you know, altitude at Leadville is the big variable. Heat at Western States is the big variable. Pick your poison, you know, what's worse. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, there's there's
0: that old very general rule that if you can run about 20 miles, you probably can run a marathon. Is there something similar for a hundred miler? Because I never actually can understand when a runner is actually ready to go and run hundred miles and sort of, you know, be physically ready for this type of adventure where, you know, with a lot of other races, there's certain benchmarks, there's certain, you know, levels of fitness that you can get to where it's pretty easy to say, you know, if you've raced a half marathon, yeah, you can go train for a marathon now. Or if you've run about 20 miles, you're actually ready to go and race the marathon and do you have in your mind some sort of general rule or, you know, a certain distance or staple workout that you like to see athletes complete before you're confident in saying you are probably ready to go run a hundred miles now?
1: Two, I there, I have two benchmarks, um, and it's, it's not, it's similar to if you can run 20, you can run a marathon and that's a, that's a hundred K, uh, 100K is only 12 miles longer than a 50 miler, but in those additional 12 miles, lots of different things happen, particularly in, in in terms of nutrition, in terms of foot care, in terms of how your quads are holding up. So I would say to anybody going and wanting to do a first time 100 miler, run 100K. Try to find that, that 100K that might somewhat mimic uh what you're hoping to do for your 100 miler. You could do a 50 miler, get a get a, you know, a particularly tough 50 miler. I know a lot of we've just been talking about Leadville. A lot of people will do the the Silver Rush 50 miler as kind of a gateway to the Leadville 100. I think I think you can pull that off. A certain person could pull that off, but I like that 12 more miles you get in 100k. You know, you get, even if you're a fast runner, you're getting up into, you know, 9, 10, 11 hours. If you're a mid-packer, you're running 14, 15, 16. Perhaps you're even running into the night, which is something it's important to be experienced with by the time you tow the line in your first 100 miler. So I would say answer number one is 100K. The other one is something that uh, myself in my coaching practice, I've been working more and more with athletes on in the last year or two, uh, and something that I practiced when I was in my competitive years, which is what I call, or what many of us call, the three-day training camp. Um, For example, this coming weekend, while we're also, everybody's eyes are going to be on the Western States 100, up in Leadville, the Leadville organizers are staging a three-day training camp on the Leadville course. And over those three days, they're going to run about 70 miles Uh, Over three days, Uh, the first day they're going to run at night or they're going to start, you know, in the the evening and run into the night. Uh, And then the next two days, they're going to cover, you know, uh, another 50, 60 miles. I have come to the um, conclusion that a and I'll just give a ballpark number of 70 miles, that 70 miles back to back to back over three days. Maybe one of those days is at night, maybe it's not, but 70 miles over three days prepares you physically and most importantly, mentally, for what you might find and what you might face in a 100-mile race. I would say particularly What I like to do is have the first day be the longest, like 30 miles on the first day, 20 miles on the second day, and 20 miles on the third day. Typically, when a runner wakes up on that third day, they really have no interest in running. They've just done 50 miles in two days. They'd like to just hit hit the snooze button, roll over and get up a couple hours later for some donuts in the paper, right? And so just that in and of itself, just that mental, nope, I've got to get up and put in this additional 20 miles. And frankly, I think the real recipe is if you're a first time 100 miler, you do both. You do a 100K race, sometimes say, like, let's say, I mean, I, I I can point to actual Western States athletes I'm training this year where they did a 50K in March or April for maybe for the first time in their lives. And they did 70 miles on the Western States course uh, in at the end of May. They're ready for the race. They're ready. Are they ready to win it? Are they ready? are they guaranteed to get 24 hours? I don't know. But they are ready physically and mentally for the race. So it's a little bit more complicated then if you can run 20 you can run a marathon but i but i will say too as most marathoners know those last 6 can be a whole different ball game than the first 20 right and similar the last 38 can be a whole different ball game than the first 62
0: yeah, I'm sure that phenomenon is just magnified in a 100-mile race where, you know, the last 10K of a marathon certainly feels like the last half of the race.
1: Yeah. And and I'm
0: sure that the last, you know, 38 miles or so of a 100-mile just feels like a, a whole other 100-mile race at that point because of the fatigue levels, because of, you know, the the soreness and just the almost the psychological and mental fatigue of just being out there for so long. Uh, Andy, I'd love to ask you a little bit about types of long runs and workouts that you will typically give athletes before say, say not necessarily the, the Western States 100, but a, a general 100 mile race. And then maybe, you know, how you would work on specificity for Western States itself.
1: So I do think a steady diet of six to 10 hour runs um, in the four months leading up to the goal event, is uh, is important from an endurance standpoint. I will also say that let's say an athlete knows they have a seven month on ramp to a race. That most of the, these big races have lotteries in in uh, December and January, and the races take place in June, July, August. Right? With that kind of on ramp. I'm, some of the benchmark workouts I'm prescribing in January and February are speed. Uh, I will start, I'll start with a, with a block of VO2, VO2 intervals on the track or on a flat bike trail, you know, at, um, you know, 85, 90% of max heart rate, you know, three, four minute intervals, uh, 10, you know, 10 by 800 on the track. A good old Yasso 800s, like for the marathon, you know, starting those six months out, building that aerobic base in January, February, jumping into a tempo block, it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be at all averse to having an athlete jump into, say, a road half marathon on the second or third week of March, which we know there's tons of great half marathons in the spring here in the United States. It's a really good fitness gauge. You know, they're out there, you know, if they're fast, they're out there, you know, an hour and 20, you know, all the way up to two, two hours and 15 minutes, get a good cage on what, what their, what their level, their, their RPE of eight is, what, what their pure tempo pace is. So they can get an idea of, okay, what am I capable of? You know, what is my threshold pace for an hour? And then how can I translate that into my all day pace? for when I have a target 50 mile race or when I do that that 100K, or indeed, how am I gonna pace my, my three-day training camp that's going to be prescribed down the road? So the other thing, and this is a golden rule, is I like to prescribe uh, least specific to most specific. So many people get into Western States or Hard Rock or UTMB, and immediately they're r- running up and down mountains, you know, seven months out. That's fine. The people love running in the mountains, but that's not, you don't need to run mountains seven months out to have success at Western States. You need to build your aerobic engine. You need to get, get your VO2 max up. You need to find out where your steady state pace is. Find out what did, what can I hold for four hours? What can I hold for six hours? What do I, how am I going to dial in my nutrition on a 10, 10 hour training run? am i getting my 250 calories an hour am i getting the sodium and electrolytes i need when it comes you know when it when the heat comes in uh, in in western states or some other race so you use those long runs both to dial in where your actual fitness is but also more the intangibles of of what's going to come on race day then when you get to 6 to 8 weeks out from the race then it's race specificity time. Then it's, let's put Western states aside for a second. Let's say you're in Vermont 100. Vermont 100 is a classic, classic East Coast 100 miler that is never flat. You know, it never climbs more than 600 feet at a time, but it's beautiful rolling country roads on a pure loop through the countryside of Vermont. But when you add up all the vertical, it's like 17,000 feet of vertical you know, through Vermont. Now, none of it's super high, but you're training for specificity of Vermont. You want to be finding places where you're constantly just rolling up and rolling down, rolling up and rolling down. Super hard race to get rhythm in. We mentioned Leadville. I would say to a Leadville athlete, okay, you're going to need to do a bunch of climbing and a bunch of running because that's what you're going to do. You're you're either doing steep climbing where you're hiking the whole thing and then hammering the downhills, or you're doing a lot of nice running. Yes, at 10,000 feet. So in that six to eight weeks, you do it. So then let's bring it around to Western States. You get to the, the races at the end of June. So I'm getting my athletes to the end of April. And it's like, okay, your tune up races are over. We're scheduling your training camp for late May. That's either going to be actually on the race course if you can get there, but if you can't get there, you're going to get 200 feet of climbing a mile somewhere because that's what the race is going to put you through. And then you find that race specificity uh, training, you know, up to, you know, a 35, 40 mile race. So it's really that, you know, dialing in that that blend of, uh, of hard workouts early on in the cycle going into specific workouts and then getting ready for race day. Andy, I want to ask you a selfish question. You mentioned all day pace. I don't think
0: I have an all day pace because (laughs) I I think after two to three hours, whether I'm running on the roads or if I go with some friends out in the mountains here outside Denver and go for a, a great trail run, I do tend to fall apart around the two and a half, three hour mark, even if the pace is very reasonable, even if, you know, we're spending a fair amount of time hiking just because we're on some gnarly terrain. What would you say to the person who's like me and and struggles to find that very sustainable pace that they can go for a very long time? You know, because I feel like I'm still trucking my stuck in my track mentality where, you know, like everything is about splits and and very specific paces. And, and I tend to struggle with this even idea of an all day pace.
1: One of my best friends, it's a beautiful question one of my best friends in the sport i'm going to see him we're, we're volunteering together this coming weekend at western states is a uh, is a guy named scott wolf scott uh was grew up in uh, north carolina went to brevard college ran cross country at brevard uh and had a marathon and track background after that i mean was you know a sub sub or pretty close to 4 minute miler uh in college uh, and uh and i remember when he first came over to ultras and we were on a training run. He, was, he had moved to Oregon at the time. He's like, AJW, I, I really need to spend some time running with you. I need you to teach me how to run slow. <laughs> and there's real wisdom in that comment. This is a guy whose, you know, recovery pace at the time was probably seven thirty, right? So he, when he said that, uh, he didn't literally mean run slow, but. The first thing I would say about all day pace is, okay, first of all, how could I possibly run all day? Well, the big, the most important way to run all day is to keep the engine fueled, right? So are you running slowly enough that you can take in 250 to 300 calories an hour, every hour, probably from a variety of different caloric sources, some liquid, some solid, some gel and block? some sweets, some savory, some solid food, some not, with the right amount of electrolytes, with the right amount of, you know, uh of paying attention to your the terrain you're running on and really dialing in that true all-day pace. Now, that is an art and a science. You can't just you can't do go like to one of these marathon calculators and punch in your 5K pace and then get your all-day pace out of that, right? It just doesn't happen. Uh you know, you have to get that all-day pace through trial and error, and through kind of understanding where you are. This is part of why this um, this sort of build-up race and tune-up race thing is important. Another thing I'll add, so I've talked about the training camp and the 100K. For other inexperienced runners who haven't yet gone sort of to the dark side of 100 milers, you know, one of the great things we have in the world of ultras are timed races. Now, some of these fixed time races, some of them bore people to tears, right? It's a a one mile loop for 12 hours or something like that. But the first of all, the mental training of running a one mile loop for 12 hours is really, really good. And dialing in that all day pace. You know, every mile you're coming back to your stuff. Every mile, you know, you're going to see other people there. You're going to either lap them or they're going to lap you. You run for 12 hours around a one mile loop. You're going to get a sense of how hard is too hard. How how easy is too easy. And what am I going to need to do to keep going for these 12 hours? So it's Uh, Granted, it's not for everybody, but I think the combination of actually doing it, of figuring out your fueling and hydration needs within the context of running for that long, and then accepting, accepting honestly that it's two to four minutes per mile slower than what you're used to running, and even you might even be putting in prescribed, you know, uh, Jeff Galloway style walking breaks, you will get an idea of what that all-day pace is, and be able to sustain it. But it, but it's an art as well as a science.
0: I love how this is, is actually so very similar to, you know, if someone were to ask me essentially the same question except for really fast paces. You know, like, how do you calibrate a five-minute mile pace versus a 510, versus 520, 530? You know, There was a time in my life where I was really good at that subtle art of pacing because I was just on the track two or three times a week doing all kinds of different workouts at all kinds of different efforts. And it seems like the answer is you need to run a lot for a very long time and you need to be intentional about it. And through trial and error, you will eventually figure out this pace. But yeah, it does sound like I I need to figure out uh, a little bit better on my fueling, and then also just leaving that track mindset behind me so that I'm much more comfortable running minutes slower out on the trails than I would here in Denver, just out on the road, because I, I certainly have a, an appropriate pace in mind that I don't like to veer from that I, I can't have on the trails.
1: A cup, a, a, a an anecdote, if you don't mind from, from personal experience, I, um, in in covid covid hit in 2020 and i i was coming uh, off of a a series of injuries where i hadn't run a 100 mile race uh, since 2017 and was feeling like i was ready to get back into the 100 mile arena but i wanted to do so in a very controlled way in a very uh in a way that i could con- manage what all? What always happens in a hundred mile high mile race? And and Jason Green, who's a race organ organizer down in in uh, in the southeast in Virginia, Georgia, places like this, was able to even in September of the of the of twenty twenty was able to stage his annual race, the Yeti one hundred, but basically on a on a chipped gravel bike path, kind of going back and forth, back and forth, you know, maybe five times. And I thought this will be perfect. This is just what I. This is just what I want. But I was like, what should be my time goal? You know, I had run, in the past, I'd run 16 hours and 17 hours for 100 mile races. I was like, no, that's too fast. I wanna run a 20 hour 100 miler. And, and so I you know, set my watch for 12 minute pace and, you know, took some breaks and one thing led to another and I got the, whatever it was, 19, 1945 miler. But what it taught me is, you know, as I was aging, even you're, you're talking about your mentality of maybe needing to run more and run slower, even as we ultras run. I mean, it might have been might have been I was would have been able to do that in 15 hours, you know, a decade earlier. But I was perfectly happy doing it in 20 hours. And and it felt good. And it felt like I had a sense of achievement. And I was able to dial in this new 53 year old version of myself in what my all day pace was. Uh, and I think that's something we ultra runners continue to do, and we can continue to learn from is, you know, at any given time that may change. We may have injury, we may, life may happen, and we, you know, have to take a bunch of time off of running to come back and find that home, that homeostasis of what is that pace that we can sustain all day. Man, it feels really good uh, when you do it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to pacing, I do think pacing is one of the aspects of the, the entire sport of running that is skill oriented. So, you know, there's a lot of things where you can just brute force your way to to success. If you're very fit and you've built a big engine and you're strong, maybe you're injury resilient, you could be pretty successful, but learning how to pace yourself in a whole variety of different scenarios, different terrain, all those kinds of uh, variables that are definitely going to come at you in different race environments for different workouts too. That I think is is one of the, the skills that uh, takes a long time to master. So uh, I'm glad you brought up the fact that there are no easy answers and it, it does take some work to really master that. Um, Andy, I, I wanna get into like the the race strategy that you might discuss with your athletes as they head into Western states. You know, we talked about the four different um, sort of sections of the course and, and how you might think about those. Uh, and no doubt that your race strategy is impacted by, you know, what you're going to experience on the course. Can you give us a, you know, a little bit of a, a, uh, Cliffs notes on on race strategy for Western states because I know it will sort of depend a little bit based on what kind of runner you are, where your strengths are. You might want to hit a certain section a little bit harder than other sections based on those strengths. But in general, what's a good race strategy for Western states?
1: Uh, the the thing you mentioned is is good race strategy. Number one, N- know your strengths and and know your your challenges or your weaknesses. I think by and large most People who've been running ultras long enough to qualify and get into Western states are know how to climb and they know how to descend, but usually they can do one better than the other. <laughs> you know, you talk to talk to hundred Western states runners and they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm dialed in for the descents, but I'm really worried about the climbs." Or I'm I you know I'm no my climbing legs are all set, but I'm worried about trashing my my uh, my legs on the on the descents. So know your strengths first of all. Right. When I think of the six athletes I have running the race this year, I have six climbers. I mean, I have three climbers and I have three descenders. It just so happened to work that way. Um, And, you know, because there's very little flat, I mean, there's flat at the end. You know, there's not a whole lot for the pure runner until the end. So know your strengths, know your challenges. You know, the, the training has been done. The training has been done. But execute and and pay attention to that. Then, I mean, start out easier than you think you have to. The snow this year should help people do that. You know, the the snow will potentially just be a natural governor on some people. Uh, conga lines will develop as people wait to get through snowy sections or, or a particularly slippery section will cause people to sort of have to group up with one another and, and get through. But, um, there are people the, as most people know the first 4 miles of western states goes straight up 2800 feet a uh, straight up a ski mountain. Uh it, you can you can ruin your race in 4 miles if you try and if you try and you know chase the lead pack up that 4 mile climb. Relax. It's a long day out there. Take in the views. Get up that first climb. Look back down at Lake Tahoe and then get into business, get into the Granite Chief Wilderness area and enjoy it. You should get to Robinson Flat, mile 30, as if you're on a relaxed, easy training run with your buddies. Uh, Your crew is going to see you there and they should be like, oh man, you look great. It looks like you've hardly run anything. Take care of yourself through there and, and enjoy it. Also, a little piece of specific strategy of the entire hundred miles. That first 30 has pretty big spaces between aid stations. You go from zero to 10, 10 to 16, 16 to 24, 24 to 30. So take care of yourself before you leave that aid station. First of all, leave the starting line with enough to get 10 miles. And certainly when you leave mile 16, have enough to get you to 24, and have enough from 24 to get you to 60. So be smart uh, about those first, the that first section. Uh that that's that's kind of the race strategy number one. Then let the day come to you through the canyons. You never know what's going to happen in the canyons. Let the day, maybe your downhill legs are feeling particularly good, let it fly. Maybe your climbing legs are feeling pretty good, let it fly. Take advantage of the fact that you're only, you're either going up or you're down through there. And you know, enjoy it but the work's going to begin through there but get to forest hill mile 62 in enough with enough energy to be like okay now it's game on for most runners at that point they're they're gearing up for the nighttime or it's either dark already maybe you need more clothes you'd certainly need a light and a backup light you're probably picking up a pacer at that point you're going to you know talk to your crew about maybe re- readjusting goals about timing and so on and so forth and you're kind of going into the unknown of the night. Um, And then after you cross the river, hey, you got 20 miles to go. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity probably, savor it, enjoy it. You're probably gonna be walking as much of it as you're gonna be running, but get through and enjoy it and heck, Maybe the, the dream of the 24 hours is out as outside is done, but Hey, maybe you can get there before it starts getting hot for the second day. Try to set it, set an incremental goal. Okay. I want to, I know I'm not going to get 24, but I'm going to try to get 26 or I'm not going to get 26, but I'm going to try to get 28, you know, do that sort of thing where you can get closer and closer to the finish line, bite it off into more digestible chunks, Because by the end of the race, in contrast to the beginning, you have aid stations every three or four miles, just run aid station to aid station, and the finish will get there. And then when you get to that track, you know, put your head up, run around that track with pride and cross that finish line knowing that you're a Western States finisher. And there's no feeling quite like that. I
0: love it. Uh, Andy, are are there significant temperature differences between what you're going to experience, say, in the canyons versus you know, at nighttime, you know, I, I know some of these arid environments can have big temperature swings, especially between the daytime and nighttime. How do you plan for that?
1: Huge, huge. So in general, I mean, a general rule, and of course, meteorologists don't like general rules, but if you take, if you just look at, you know, the average of the last 50 years at Western States, if you take the, 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 the average temperature in Auburn, the, the finishing town, uh you would you would subtract 10 degrees for Forest Hill. So if it's 90 in Auburn it's going to be 80 in Forest Hill. And then you'd add 10 degrees for the bottom of El Dorado Canyon. This is this canyon that's on the way up to Michigan Bluff. So it would be 100 degrees. if it's 90 in Auburn it would be 100 there. It would be 80 uh in Forest Hill. Then you add the night. Okay? And it's and it's California, there are microclimates, right? So night comes A chill comes in the air. There's a lot of places where there's water. You cross a creek. It could be 10 degrees colder right down there by the creek crossing. You run down along the American River. Uh, It could be cool down there because you've got this big raging river. Uh, A year like this where it's shaping up to not be super hot, uh, especially as you get to the nighttime and you've been going for 60, 70 miles and you're slowing down. You may need a jacket through the night. You may need gloves and a hat, believe it or not, through the night, and then you may need, you know, uh, ice bandana and arm sleeves the very next morning. <laughs> so while while you don't quite need to prepare for extremes of weather at Western states quite as much as you do at Leadville, where you might have afternoon thunderstorms, or 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 UTMB, where you'll have big, you know, variations in the in the elevation. This year, especially, you should be prepared for a little bit of it because of the microclimates and because it's looking like race day temperatures are not going to be that hot. Andy, I'm getting all excited
0: about about running, trail running, hundred milers. You're, <laughs> you're really get, giving me the goosebumps about all this uh, running magic. You know, I, I think the way that you're describing Western states and you know the adventure that is running a hundred miles, it's very similar in my mind to you know, big adventure expeditions of 150, 200 years ago. And we just don't have those these days. And it's just this wonderful way for average people to go out there and just experience something that is so different from the everyday. And I think there's something really special in that. Um, Is there anything I might have missed that Might help runners better understand this race, so that they can run it with more intentionality, be more successful, and just have more fun out there on the on the trail.
1: I think one of the most important things is to you know you you asked me at the outset what makes it iconic, and there are some aspects of it that that make it make the race larger than life. You know whether it's the place names, the history, the the elite field, all of those things. But at the end of the day it's just a race. Uh there are 1300 volunteers for 380 runners. Take me for example. I mean I ran it for the la- the 10th and last time in in 2014, but I've gone back every year except for the COVID year. I've gone back every year to volunteer. I mean this year I'm going to I'm going to do parking patrol at Robinson Flat and park cars for 6-7 hours because that's something the race needs and and then I'm going to go and go to the Michigan Bluff aid station and help out at the Michigan Bluff aid station. And and then I'm gonna go down to mile 93 to kind of cheer people on to their their silver buckle. And then I'll go to the finish line and spend a couple of hours in the announcer's booth announcing the race. But the race is part of who I am. And even nine years after I stopped running it, I would not miss it for the world. Uh, You know, on the last weekend of June, if you're looking for me, look for me at on the Western States course somewhere. So for aspiring runners, no, yes, it takes these days, it takes tremendous patience <laughs> to get through the lottery and get in. You have to keep running qualifiers. You have to keep fit. You have to hope for a little bit of lady luck shining on you. But once you get in, once you grab that brass ring and you have a chance to run this race, it's it's going to change your life and while it's big and there's hype and there's a lot that goes into it and there's mystique it's also just a race and when you're out there when you're in the midst of it and these 1300 v- volunteers are there taking care of you and making sure that you can get safely and comfortably from Olympic Valley to Auburn it's it's going to change your life so that's the most most important thing that I would say for people who want to keep doing it or might be frustrated, oh my gosh, I've been trying for 6 years. I haven't gotten in. Screw it. I'll go do something else. I would say, wait just a second. Just get one more qualifier, put another put another bu- uh, ticket in the bucket and give it a shot because it's there's nothing quite like it in the world of trail and ultra running. Beautiful. Thank you, Andy. Um all right, let's let's
0: call it a podcast. Uh th- this has been so exciting for me just to learn more about this uh, legendary race. And and I'm sure our listeners are just clamoring to sign up for next year. <laughs> um, I know you have a wonderful podcast, Crack a Brew with AJW that folks can check out. Uh, is there anywhere else that you'd like to point runners to if they want to learn more about you, the runner, you, the coach, you, the podcaster?
1: Yeah, so thank you for that. Yes, I just back in February, um, after several years of thinking about it, um, I started a podcast with my good friends at Trail Runner Nation, Don Freeman and Scott War. So it's called Crack a Brew with AJW. It's it's um it's kind of a it's a it's a formulaic podcast where I invite a guest on. We share a beverage and talk about running in life. It's in, intentionally, you know, like a 45 minute to 50 minute kind of talk show format podcast. In addition, for the past Almost uh, 12 years, I've been writing a column on the on the ultra trail and ultra running website, irunfar.com. Uh, the column is called AJW's Tap Room uh, and it comes out every Friday. And I write all kinds of stuff on there, just kind of ruminations about running and and life and and you know what it's meant to me and what it means to other people. So check that out every Friday on irunfar.com. And then I do coach, I coach with CTS, which is a coaching company out of Colorado Springs. Uh, it's, uh, started years and years ago as a cycling, uh, cycling coaching company, uh, branched out into triathlons and, and about 10 years ago into ultra and trail running. We have about 10 coaches. Uh, you can, you can find, uh, find anything about it on TrainRight.com, uh, which is the website for CTS. And we've got about 10 ultra trail and ultra running coaches on there. And, Uh, various specialties from FKTs to multi-die races to 100 milers to, you know, older runners to runners trying to juggle, you know, having a family and trail running. It's a real equal operation. Some people think coaching is only for the elites. I mean, I would say none of my six Western States runners would call call themselves anything anything like elite, but they've all signed up for coaching and and are getting to the starting line, I think ready to go. So yeah, crackabrew with AJW, AJW's Tap Room, and and check me out on, uh, on at CTS's website at trainright.com. There's a strong beer
0: theme to what you do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do, and I do enjoy a beverage now and then. But the the idea, uh, really, of, of uh, AJW's Tap Room was this notion that when 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 Brian and I started it almost 12 years ago, was the the topics we would cover would be the kinds of ca- topics you would just you know chat about with your friends when you're sharing a beer at the trailhead or at the local at the local brew pub after a long run. So that's sort of the idea of it. And similar with Crack-A-Brew. Love it. Well, thanks, Andy.
0: Maybe we can share a beer at some point in the future. Until then, uh, have a blast out there at Western States this weekend coming up. And uh, it was really great to connect. Thank you.
1: Awesome. Jason, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on.
0: And that's our show. Thanks for listening, and if you'd like to pay it forward, please rate and review the show. You can share it with your running friends, or you can invest in a training program at strengthrunning.com coaching. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors. By using their links and discount codes, you are supporting the Strength Running Podcast and telling our sponsors that they should continue supporting the show. First, get yourself 15% off your first purchase at prevenex.com with code Jason15. If you've been listening to this podcast for the last six months or so, you've heard me talk about Joint Health Plus from Prevenex and how it's directly impacted the health of so many other listeners. Their CEO keeps forwarding me testimonials because it just works. So definitely keep those coming. Today, I want to tell you about another product that I consider my secret weapon in my personal routine. It's called Nurify Plus, and it's a plant-based meal replacement product not just a protein powder. And I take it after most of my runs, and it's really helped me with recovery and making sure that I'm getting high quality proteins, carbs, fats, fluids, and vitamins and probiotics. After a run, your body is a lot more receptive to nutrients, and having a complete balanced shake is a convenient way of getting what you need when you need it. Now, I personally struggle with eating a lot after a run, especially now that it's getting warmer out. But I know I need to maximize my recovery. With Narify, I'm getting a convenient post-run meal that I can then follow up afterwards with solid foods when my stomach is just more ready for that. It tastes great, it's clean and healthy, there's no gums, sugar, alcohols, preservatives, there's no artificial anything. And the bottom line is that I just feel better when I'm using Naurify, I'm recovering faster, and I know I'm giving my body incredible nutritional support after a run, when my body needs it. You can get 15% off your first Previnex purchase by using code Jason15 at checkout. Visit prevenex.com, that's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com. And I'll note one last thing. Prevenex offers a 30-day money-back guarantee where if you don't feel the benefits on their product, you get your money back, no questions asked. And by the way, keep sending in those testimonials, they fire me up. Next is one of my favorite strength and performance tools, the MOBO board. Go to moboboard.com and use code STRENGTHRUN10 to save 10% on your board. It was invented by physical therapist, Jay Desherry, who I actually spent some time with last month. I took his physical therapy workshop, Refining the Running Rehab Journey, which is all about treating injuries, preventing injuries, and helping runners move better so they can focus on performance. The MOBO board plays a big part in these goals because it helps you stabilize your stance with a very unique rocker board that's set up on these two fins. So it rocks back and forth. There's a hole where your four little toes are, and that effectively forces you to drive your big toe into the board to improve your stability. You can hear Jay and I discuss stability training and the MOBO board more in episode 275 of the podcast. I mentioned this before, but I was overly confident going into my first session on the MOBO board. I mean, how hard can it be to balance, right? Well, I was very humbled very quickly. Even if you're a good runner, better balance, stability, and proprioception are all going to help you have a more powerful stride and prevent more running injuries. You'll learn how to improve the efficiency of the kinetic chain from your hip to your big toe. If you can't stabilize your leg with your big toe driving down into the ground, you don't have a stable stance, and your race times are going to be slower, and your injury risk higher. Because as Jay likes to say, it's not just how strong you are, but how well you use that strength. Thankfully, the MOBO board is affordable, and you can also save 10% with code STRENGTHRUN10 at MOBOBOARD.com. Again, that's strengthrun 10 at moboboard.com. All right. That's our show. My friends, thank you for supporting our sponsors for leaving a review or investing in a training program for yourself. I am always available to help you with a question. So don't ever hesitate to reach out to me. You can reach me through the strength running website, or you can message me on Instagram at Jason one. We'll talk soon.